And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Who doesn't love a good rags-to-riches story? It's especially enjoyable when it's not just about money, right? But when there's a positive transformation for the character. Uh, Steve Rogers is a great example in the Captain America movies. His story starts with him being weak and sick and ineffectual, powerless to help those around him. But then he's transformed. And Steve is no longer the powerless kid getting beat down by every passing bully. Now he's Captain America, empowered to fight the good fight and win with a strength and vitality that seems impossible. In our text tonight, Paul gives us a similar transformative rags-to-riches story, but it's not really a superhero tale. It's more in the zombie horror genre. Uh, He speaks of the walking dead and dark powers that control the world and infect people in it and enslave the inhabitants of the earth. Uh, But a hero does emerge in this story. It's the God of the Bible who overcomes all of this evil and turns back the fatal effects of sin, rescuing people and giving them new life. Paul still wants us to think about the significance of salvation. He wants us to spend lots of time thinking about it, comparing it, contrasting it, evaluating it, because he is convinced that these thoughts about the significance of salvation will make a huge difference in our lives as Christians and in our relationships with the Lord. Uh, Chapter 1, he talks in all the positive, just uh, about the greatness of the inheritance we've received from the Lord. And in chapter 2, he has us think about sort of the, from the other angle, just how bad our prospects were before we were rescued by God's grace. And so we begin in verse 1. And Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So the problem couldn't be more direct or more dire or more final. You were dead. Not you were less than ideal. Not you were pretty sick. No, you were dead. There is no middle ground between life and death, despite what the princess bride tells us, right? If you're dead... You don't go to a doctor to try to get better because the doctor has pronounced you dead and then we see in the, in the movies and television, he takes off the gloves, it's over. They call it, right? It's over. Everybody stops t- doing all their work because you're dead. There's nothing that can be done. Now, death, of course, wasn't part of God's original purpose for his creation. He had no interest in including death in uh, the cosmos. It came about through trespasses and sins. Adam and Eve, uh, the first human beings, were told very plainly, very directly, okay, if you eat of the tree, uh, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will surely die. And they decided to go the death route instead of the obedience route. And so they brought sin and death into God's perfect creation. 
All of Adam's descendants, you and me, we inherit that death, and then we commit individual acts of rebellion and disobedience against God, uh, bringing on ourselves more sin and death, in a sense, along the way, because we're sinners, and we are stuck in this state of death. Now, this spiritual death is a big problem. It leads to physical death, but more importantly, it leads to eternal death and separation from God. We need help beyond diet and exercise. We need help beyond doctors, beyond philosophers, beyond the spiritualists of this world. The only thing that could possibly help us is if there were somehow someone who had power over sin and death, someone who could bring the dead back to life. That's the only person that could help those of us who are dead in trespasses and sins. And no human religion can do that. No regime can do that. No philosophy can do that. Uh, No treatment can do that. Why? Because all of those things that I just listed come from dead sinners, right? Therefore, those systems, those philosophies, those religions, they are also dead in sin. And so we need outside help. We need help from beyond the cosmos, help from outside sin and death, and no one in our created universe qualifies for that. As we've seen before, these opening chapters in Ephesians uh, are really full of sort of information. They're dense, they're doctrinal, and they are, have become hotly contested battlegrounds when it comes to um, the doctrine over election, uh, over how God saves people, or in more layman's terms, we, it, when it comes to Reformed or Calvinistic doctrine, um, the opening chapters of Ephesians are a big battleground. And this verse, Ephesians 2, 1, is in particular, is often seized upon as proof that human beings have absolutely no part in the process of their salvation. You'll hear quotes like, dead people can't do anything, or a dead man cannot exercise faith in Jesus Christ, or a dead man cannot cooperate with God's offer of healing. Now, as we've said before, uh, the reason we talk about this when it comes up in a passage like Ephesians 2 is not because we're trying to blast anybody or offend anybody, but uh, this is an important doctrinal issue that most of us as Christians have um, come across at one time or another. Either family members bring this up, friends, co-workers, other Christians who we love. Um, This issue uh, over uh, what we would call Calvinistic doctrine is a non-essential issue. You can be a Christian and be a Calvinist. You can be a Christian and not be a Calvinist. Uh, If some of you have this perspective here tonight, that's fine. We love you. Here at Calvary Hanford, uh, we do not adhere to the teachings of John Calvin in in this sense or in the Reformed doctrine. And so we talk about it because it's coming up here and this is a significant area. And if you have a friend or a family member, a co-worker, or just a Christian buddy who is into uh, Reformed Calvinistic doctrine, eventually they're going to come to you with Ephesians 2 verse 1 and say, there you go, we are dead in trespasses and sins, everybody knows that a dead person can't do anything, therefore your perspective on the Bible is wrong and flawed, and what you think about God is wrong and flawed, and you need to be evangelized into the Calvinistic uh, perspective. And so that's why we talk about it when it comes up. Hopefully, if you find yourself on the other side of this issue, you're not offended tonight, but we do want to share a little bit our perspective 
on this issue. Uh, the, the perspective that dead people can't do anything and a dead man cannot exercise faith in Jesus Christ, that you as a Christian have absolutely nothing to do with the process of salvation because you were saved in eternity past and God determined that you would be saved and determined that others would not be saved. It has nothing to do with your faith or your cooperation with him. That perspective uh, leads to a shocking statement of doctrine. I think it's shocking held by Reformed scholars like R.C. Sproul, for example, who will say this simple phrase, regeneration precedes faith. Uh, That's been called the essence of Reformed theology. What does that mean? Regeneration precedes faith. That means that the perspective is you were saved and put into Christ before you believed in Christ because that happened in eternity past. And back in chapter 1, we talked about our perspective on election and what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1 and our understanding of what we call prevenient grace as opposed to what a Reformed position would be irresistible grace. And if you're interested in that, you can look back at the studies in chapter 1. And so they say, hey, Ephesians 2, 1, they say, there it is. Regeneration precedes faith. You were dead. A dead man can do nothing. So God does everything with zero input or cooperation from the person. Uh, The problem to us with that assessment of this analogy that Paul is using is that it doesn't work in the immediate context and it doesn't work in the rest of Scripture. Paul is going to say in verse 2, you were dead, which we just read, right? But here's all the things you were doing. You were walking and pursuing passions and being energized by the devil and moving around and doing all sorts of things. So the dead are very active in these verses. They do all sorts of things. And so the analogy immediately sort of is different than is being presented by some of these doctrinal statements. Second, let's start thinking through the issue. Uh, When Adam and Eve committed the very first sin, we were told, in the day you eat of it, you will die. And we recognize that that immediately happened. Why? Because their eyes were open, they realized they were naked, and they were afraid, they hid from God, right? There it is, the separation, which is another word for, for death in the Bible, this separation from God, it's a problem. So we recognize that Adam and Eve died, at least spiritually, in that moment. They were alienated from God. They brought sin into themselves, and all, uh, you know, we see that. We also recognize that they began to die physically, and that they would have gone on to die eternally, right? They died in the day they ate of the fruit, and, and they would have died eternally had God not intervened by his grace. But what do we notice in the garden? That even in their state of death, hiding from God, he did seek them out, and then they were able to talk with God and answer him when he, they, he called them and receive grace from them, right? That didn't suddenly make it that they couldn't communicate with God. He called to them, and they answered. Third, when Jesus told the parable of the lost son, the father describes his son and, and the rags-to-riches story that happened with his son and the transformative process of his son being redeemed and rescued from his waywardness. And the father uses the very same word for dead that Paul uses here. It's the word necros, necrotic, right? The father says, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. So when did that transformation happen? Uh, well, we read that he came to his senses. The son chose to fall on his father's mercy and ask for forgiveness. The son didn't save himself. 
The son didn't bring himself back into his father's good graces, but he did respond to the willingness of the father to receive him, right? Father looked for him every day and ran out to receive him and enfolded him in his arms when the son was willing to come and receive that forgiveness. Fourth, this may be the most important. If this verse is saying, you were dead in trespasses and sins, therefore you have absolutely no communication with God, no part in salvation, you don't exercise any faith in order to be saved, a dead person can't do anything, okay, but then I run into a real problem when I turn over to Romans 6.11 because in Romans 6.11 it says that you, Christian, are dead now to sin uses the exact same word. So before, before a person is Christian, uh, Christian, they are dead in sin. And those from a certain reformed perspective would say, there you go, you cannot talk to God, you cannot respond to God, you cannot exercise faith, you have to be regenerated before you can exercise faith. Okay, well then what happens with the fact that it then says that now I'm dead to sin? Are you saying that you don't sin? Are you saying that you're perfect now that you're a believer? Nobody thinks that. Nobody honestly thinks that. If you say that you're without sin, you're a liar, right? And so so it's a problem because it's the same word. So if the person in Ephesians 2 cannot act in faith toward God because they are dead in sin, how is it that a Christian is able to still disobey God since Roman tells us we are dead to sin, right? It's a problem. And it would suggest if the logic flows that if a person sins, they are not Christians because they must be dead to God, not dead to sin. Uh, So, yes, human beings are dead in trespasses and sins. They are separated from God, totally unable to save themselves. It is God who does the work of salvation. It is God who initiates. It is God who reaches out to us. But what we find in the scripture is the clear presentation that God has given man a free will in order to respond. What does that mean? God uses what we would call prevenient grace to free the will of human beings in order to then give us the ability to either accept his offer of salvation by faith or to reject his offer of salvation by faith. Now, the majority of us here tonight have accepted this free gift. And so, like Paul says in verse one here, we were dead. And now we're not dead in trespasses and sins anymore. Now we are alive. But if you are not a Christian here tonight, if you have never been born again, if you've never um, repented of your sin and turned to the Lord and by faith received the gift of salvation, well, then you are dead in trespasses and sins. You may feel alive. You may feel like there's no problem, but this is the fact of reality. You are dead. Sin is a fatal poison that is working its way through your life, and it only has one destination. Uh, Paul would say here that you are like a zombie, and there is no happy ending unless you are cured from your sin and death. Verse 2 continues, you're dead in trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Zombies don't know they're zombies in the movies, right? Uh, They may be slow-moving zombies. They may be fast-moving zombies, but they're never self-aware zombies. I mean, maybe there are a few, but like in general, they don't know, right? They just stumble around doing whatever they do. And that's exactly what life is for those who aren't Christians. Uh, You're living life, but what you're really doing is living death. 
You're living out the death that sin brings into your life and eventually you are going to face the condemnation for your sin and that only ends in eternal death forever and ever. Now, Paul goes deeper here and he reveals that on top of being dead, the unsaved are enslaved to the ruler of this world. That ruler is identified later in the book as the devil himself. The devil is real. He's called the God of this world. Why? Because Adam and Eve were meant to have dominion over the earth, but instead they traded that dominion to Satan. And now he uses his sinister power to bring as much suffering and death and ruin to the people of earth because God loves the people of the earth and Satan hates God. And he wants to destroy God's people. He wants to do what he can to ruin God's plan. He's a destroyer and a killer. That's who he is. And in 2 Timothy 2, we learn that human beings are trapped by the devil and taken captive to do his will. Now, when you become a Christian, you are saved from the power of the devil. And, and we're told that greater is he that is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world, the devil. And so we don't need to fear the devil. A Christian can't be possessed by the devil. Um, But that's what's going on. And later in the letter, Paul's going to keep talking about this struggle and these powers that are at war with one another. And he's going to say, hey, this is what's going on on a great cosmic spiritual level. Also, you are enlisted to be part of that struggle against the powers of evil in this lost and dying world. If you're not a Christian here tonight, the Bible's trying to help you. I don't know what you think about the Bible. I don't know, you know, what you've been told about it or what your experience has been. But listen, the Bible is trying to help you. We're trying to help you. You may think that you're living life just fine. Sure, you're not perfect, but you're doing the best you can. You're not as bad as, you know, your neighbor. You're not as bad as Adolf Hitler, whatever. Have all of these rationalizations. But the reality is... You are a dying slave zombie being ground into a system of sin and death, right? That's what the Bible is explaining very plainly. The ways of the world that Paul is talking about here lead only one place, and that is the grave. That's why every human being who has ever lived and every human being who ever will live has gone into the grave, right? Except for Jesus Christ, Because he's the God-man and he came out of the grave and he's the first fruits of the resurrection. And then God says, now if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, I'm going to extend the power of the resurrection to you. And you are going to come out of the grave and you are going to avoid what the Bible calls the second death. Right? But if you're not a Christian, you're going to be like every other person who has ever lived and died on the earth and is in the grave. And one day they are going to come out of the grave to go to the second death. And God doesn't want that for you. Uh, He wants you to be set free. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to live and not die. But you have to interact with God and make a decision about whether you believe him or not. If you don't repent and receive salvation in Jesus Christ, you are going to perish. Jesus was very clear about that. Luke 13, verse 5. By the way, Christians, what Paul has just described here, the ways of the world which is according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in uh, the disobedient, this is why utopia is impossible. Because the world and its systems are ultimately ruled by the devil whose goal is death and disobedience toward God and the destruction of mankind. That is his goal, and he's, in a sense, in charge of what's going on in the systems of this world. Now, of course, God is in charge. 
right? It's not that Satan is as powerful as God and they're arm wrestling and we don't know how it's going to turn out. But right now, Satan is the God of this world in that he is able to uh, impact the systems of this world, the governments of this world, the nations of this world, people in this world toward his evil, perverse, destructive purposes, which is to hurt people, to kill people, to to draw people away from God, to trap people and enslave them to sin, right? And so utopia is not possible this side of eternity. And this is why the Lord Jesus is going to physically return one day and judge sin and establish a literal kingdom and reclaim this world and redeem it through and through where righteousness will reign instead of sin. And he says, and you Christians are going to reign alongside me, and I'm going to show you what utopia actually is. It can't happen apart from me, the king of kings, actually ruling and reigning, right? And so, meanwhile, on earth, People here think that, well, if we just have the right laws, if we just have the right balance of powers, if we just have the right distribution of goods, everything would be perfect. We could establish a human utopia. That's all we really need to do. Get rid of the right people who don't think a certain way or have a certain number of people who think this way over here and a certain number of laws and a certain number of whatever, and then we'll establish the perfect human society. But it is impossible. Why? Because humanity is a bunch of corrupt, enslaved zombies living in ways that are in opposition to the goodness of God, held captive to the will of a being whose whole purpose is to mock God, fight God, destroy God's people, and ruin as many lives as he can. So, as Christians, though, that gives us a really important perspective as we live life, right? Because we want to be very thoughtful about how we interact and involve ourselves in the world's systems. Because we live in the world, right? It's a lost and dying world. We are passing through. This world is not our home. And yet, here we are. The Lord says, you're going to be my body on the earth while you're here. We talked about this last time. But... We want to be really thoughtful about our interaction and our involvement in the world systems and to keep the proper perspective. Don't get me wrong. We are supposed to go throughout the world shining the light of the gospel, demonstrating the love of God, but we are not going to make things better in our communities or in the world at large unless our primary goal is to rescue the dead as we have been rescued, right? So that has to be the primary goal. So it's all good to be involved in the civic process and to be good citizens and all of that and to try to affect change at a legislative level. Not necessarily against that, but we really need to keep this perspective because what really needs to happen is that we need to rescue people from death because those people are held captive by the devil. Those people are dead in trespasses and sins. Those people are being ruled by the base nature within them. And so just trying to make a law that makes them do that kind of stuff less is not ultimately going to work or be effective towards a better society. You know, in a zombie movie, the whole point is that the living cannot cooperate with the zombies, right? They can't be on the school board together to make a better tomorrow. What zombies need is a cure, right? So if you're a Christian, Paul would just say, listen... 
take a look at your political action, take a look at your social engagement, take a look at your interaction with culture and society, and just run it through this perspective where we realize that this world is not our home. It is ruled by the devil who is working constant disobedience in all the ways he, he can. And so as we engage, our main goal is to rescue the dead out of their death, not to gussy up the graves that they find themselves in, right? That's, that's the goal. That's the perspective we want to have. Verse 3, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Previously, Paul spoke to Gentiles. Uh, He'll identify them later in the chapter, but now he's including Jews here. This is a universal problem. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When Paul talks about the flesh here, he doesn't mean the tissue that makes up your body. He means the whole person oriented away from God towards its own selfish desires. The flesh is a tyrant over the unsaved person's life. And we've already seen that it's infected with Satan's power. Paul is contrasting in in these sections the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a Christian leading to life and the work of the devil, a sort of unholy spirit in the heart of an unbeliever leading to death. He's contrasting them because he wants us to realize what we're saved from, what we're saved for, what salvation means from the inside out, just how great a salvation this really is. It's important that we recognize, though, that not every outworking of the flesh looks bad. Right? Paul's now including himself. And if you step back without the perspective of Scripture, if an average Gentile, Greek, whoever, kind of read a biography of Saul before he was a believer, they would find him very reputable. They might think he was, you know, overly religious, but they would find him to be quite an upstanding guy. He's kind of a cream of the crop kind of guy. And Paul uses himself as an example here. He says, Listen, I also was a dead man doing sinful zombie stuff, just carrying out the inclinations of my sinful flesh. But what was Paul doing before he became a Christian? Well, from the world's perspective, he was totally dedicated to religion. Uh, He was a top-level scholar. Everything he did, he did because he thought he was honoring God. He was an expert in law, an expert in culture. He was willing to absolutely dedicate himself to his faith. But Paul says, man, what was my life really? Uh, It was war against Jesus Christ. It was selfishness and sin. It was devilish activity dressed up as piety. We too, he says. And so we want to understand that the flesh is not always the gross stuff, right? The, The works of the flesh can sometimes seem very honorable, very reputable, even very beneficial to human society. But if it's apart from Jesus Christ, if it's apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, it's still death. Someone who's not a Christian might say, okay, listen, this is all a little too much. I'm not uh, some depraved evildoer like we're talking about here. I could be way much worse than I am. I'm just a regular person living a regular life. But listen, this is why you need to hear what God is saying in his living word. You are a slave to sin. Your flesh has taken over your life. Your legitimate human needs have been distorted and corrupted and are now leading you to eternal death. Because when we live outside of God's salvation, we are under wrath. That's what Paul says here. Wrath is not God throwing a tantrum. It is his response to injustice and to sin. 
if we saw a policeman outside and we watched him, you know, see people robbing houses, setting fires, running this stop sign right here over and over and over again, we would say, why don't you do something? Why don't you put a stop to these acts? And he would say, eh, what do I care? They're not doing as much evil as they could do, and they weren't killing people while they were running the stop sign. And we would say, well, this is unjust. You're not a just policeman, and you need to be relieved of your duty, right? So God has to respond to sin and disobedience and rebellion because he is a holy God. He must avenge injustice. He must punish evil. He must put down rebellion. Ecclesiastes, the book, closes with this phrase, God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. So the situation is dire, right? If, if you think, we, we saw how good salvation was in chapter one, and Paul says, now pause and realize how bad things were before the Lord intervened. We were dead, condemned, powerless to climb out of our graves. And then Paul utters what has been called the greatest short phrase in the history of human speech, but God. Verse 4, but God. Despite the failure of man, despite the power of the devil, despite the hopelessness of our situation, we read, but God. The main point of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, is that God will not stay out of the picture. He will not write us off or start over with a fresh sheet of paper. That's what I do. I just, like, if I, I can't draw, I can't do things, and if I, if I mar up the paper too much, I just, oh, I'll just throw that away and we'll start fresh. You realize that God could have started fresh, right? He could have just obliterated this universe and said, that didn't work. <laughs> Better not give them free will next time. I'll just make automatons that have to love me. But he didn't do that. Why? Verse 4 continues, But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love he had for us. This all-powerful God is a being of love, a being of mercy. Just how rich is his mercy? It's so great that even though we infected ourselves with sin knowingly, we brought death on purpose into God's perfect creation. Even though we did that, God is still willing to come down and rescue us. Even though we were his enemies at war with them, he loved us first and he gave us his own son to die in our place so that we could have the chance to be saved. Even though we have nothing to offer him and he still has to do all the work to beautify us and remake us and restore us. He's willing to do it because that's how rich his mercy is. That's how great his love is. Imagine you find yourself on Amazon tomorrow, buying a product you're interested in, checking the listings, okay? I'm gonna use a guitar pedal. I love guitar pedals. Uh, they're meant to serve a function. They're meant to be beautiful. They're awesome. There's never been a reverb pedal that I met that I didn't want, right? One of my reverb pedals broke recently, and I don't know what to do. I'm, like, having palpitations. I only have, like, three or four reverb pedals now on my board. Like, it's a problem. But let me use a guitar pedal as an example. There you are. On Amazon. There it is. And here's this listing for a guitar pedal. But it's the ugliest guitar pedal imaginable. Also, it doesn't work. You know up front it doesn't work. It's completely broken. There's components missing. It's ruined. It's inoperable. The price, all the money you have. All of it. You're going to have to sell your house. You're going to have to sell your cars. You're going to have to sell one of your kids on the black market. You're going to have to empty your retirement accounts. You have to sell everything. Everything. 
to get enough money to buy this guitar pedal. By the way, even if you buy it, and even if you fix it up, and even if you polish it and do all of the things to make it work, a lot of the time that guitar pedal's still not going to work right. It's still going to just like screech and give static sometimes, right? You realize that's us, right? We are the guitar pedal. And God is the buyer who didn't just do it one time. He did it millions upon millions of times over for you and for you and for me and for everybody, everybody else who's in Christ. Why would you buy a product like that? We would never buy a product like that. And the Lord did again and again and again. He bought you and me with his blood on purpose. That's how rich his love and mercy are for you. Scholars tell us that the word Paul uses for mercy here is the same word the Septuagint uses for that Hebrew term we learned in Genesis, hesed, that steadfast, loyal, active love that God has for us. It's a merciful love, meaning he didn't have to do it, but he did. Uh, With this great love and mercy, here's what God did. Verse five, he made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. One of the main themes of zombie movies is that once you're infected, it's over, right? It's over. Uh, But the Lord does the impossible. He rolls back the effects of sin and death. He brings us back to life. And this is what Paul has been marveling at for all of this time. This is why he's been talking so big about salvation for more than a chapter now. And it's not just a future thing. You were dead and now you are alive. You are saved. It's a completed action that has ongoing effects as the Lord sanctifies us and continues the work that he began in us. It's all a work of grace. We do not save ourselves. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. We don't pay for it. But we have the opportunity to understand what God has done and respond in faith. As the letter continues, we learn more and more about how that response works out. First, we respond by receiving the gift of salvation, and then we respond by applying the salvation and the power of God's grace to our lives, to our relationships, to our futures. Now, we can break this passage down and look at it sort of overall from maybe three angles. The first is for unbelievers. You need to be advised about your spiritual condition and the danger that you're in. You are dead, and you are dying, and you are headed for eternal death in the lake of fire. Now, God doesn't want you to go there. Hell wasn't made for human beings. It was made for the devil and his angels. God doesn't want you to go there at all. But you have to go there if you refuse to let Jesus be your substitute for sin because the wages of sin is death. And if you say, well, no, I I belong to the devil now, according to Ephesians 2, and I'm going to stick with him. Okay, then you're going to spend eternity with him in the lake of fire. But you too can be made alive and saved from the guilt of your sin, saved from the eternal death you are headed for. The way out is very simple. You receive God's gift of salvation by faith. You're saved by grace. It wasn't what you did. It wasn't what you were owed. It wasn't any of that. You're saved by grace. And the way you receive that gift is through faith. We read this. This is the message of faith that we proclaim If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's not all salvation is about, but that's how you receive God's free gift of salvation. The second angle of these verses is for us who are in Christ. We should be amazed at what was. We were dead, hopeless, helpless, guilty, trapped, enslaved. God cut through all of that because of his love, to pull us out of the grave and to lift us up to a place where death no longer has power over us. Sin no longer has power over us. The devil will no longer control us. In fact, he will flee from us if we resist him. 
This is the most amazing rags to riches story of all time. And we should celebrate in our hearts what God has done. But then the third angle, that's also for us who are in Christ, is that we should be aware of what still could be. Because the truth is, we do still sin, don't we? We can still fall into the devil's traps when we stumble, when we make the same mistake Adam and Eve made, and that's to disobey God, to not trust him and not obey him when we should. Paul was talking to Christians in Romans when he said, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, that's us, offer yourselves to God. So he says, hey, don't do it. Don't turn back. It's possible for us to turn off the road of righteousness and take steps on the way of the world and the result is ruin and disaster. It can happen. What did Jesus say to the church at Sardis. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. That's a big problem. Necros. So if you're a Christian here tonight, be alert and strengthen what remains and is about to die. That's what he told Sardis. He says, be alert, strengthen what remains and is about to die. And so Christians must recognize that there is a war and a struggle in our hearts and in this world. And we have to cooperate with the sanctifying power of Christ so that we don't turn back to sin and death. And one way for us to keep our minds right uh, on this issue and to be alert is to just evaluate whether we are following the standards of the world or if we're following the standards of God. Do we see this world as something we want to receive praise from, cooperate with, or do we see this world as dying and in need of saving through Jesus Christ? If we as Christians are always agreeing with culture and always standing with culture and agreeing with people who hate God and hate his word, if we pass all the current world standards for coolness or acceptability or open-mindedness or political correctness, those sorts of things, then we are not understanding the situation properly because we're saying, hey, this world is great. It's not great. It's dead. It's dying. It's lost. It needs redemption. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we want to dedicate our lives to help save the dead out of their death and to walk with the Lord, not in the flesh, which drags us into captivity. We have all the life and all the power and all the direction we need because God has given it to us in this salvation. So be alive in Christ, fight the good fight, walk worthy of him until we finish our course and are ushered into glory, into everlasting life forever and ever.